0: so much to think about from the last two editions of Ripples with the patient's voice coming through loud and clear. Big concerns about suspended treatments, future options and how things could be so much better in our health service. And I have to say way too many tweets telling the same desperate story about patients who've had their treatment options removed because of the pandemic and sadly as a result they've lost their lives much sooner than they need have. Some positive news, the Prime Minister seems to have accepted there's a need for an independent inquiry into how the NHS coped with the pandemic crisis, but as yet, no timescale put on that. Mr Johnson apparently doesn't think this is the right time to be delving into this subject while the health crisis rages around us. Well, for some, that's not urgent enough because there's a clear and pressing need to find out what's gone so badly wrong and, of course, how we would avoid the same mistakes in the future. The threat from COVID-19 is still out there. It's not going to disappear anytime soon. Well, welcome back to Ripples. I'm Claire English and I mentioned social media and patient concerns, so it's fitting that this time we're talking to one of the loudest and most informed voices on Twitter, which belongs to the editor of The Lancet. Richard Horton's been providing no-holds-barred commentary on the impact of the pandemic on cancer patients. He has a personal stake in all this because he is a cancer patient himself. But he also understands the multiple challenges facing the NHS. Let's begin the conversation as ever on Zoom, and I wanted to ask Richard why he thought we'd taken so long to respond to the coming threat of COVID-19. We'd seen the storm approaching around the globe, hadn't we?
1: I think the main reason why we responded in the way we did was that we were looking at the threat of a pandemic, which was, of course, number one on the National Risk Register. But we saw that pandemic as being influenza. And of course, influenza is a, is a very, can be a very nasty infection. It has a roughly 0.1% mortality rate, which is, you know, not small, but we get it every year. The NHS copes with it every year. There's not a national outcry about it every year. We've kind of normalized influenza epidemics into our daily life. And all of the modeling and planning for a pandemic was around influenza. What we didn't do was plan for a SARS-like virus. And we didn't have a plan for that. We didn't think about it. And one of the mysteries to me is that despite the evidence that was so clearly laid out in the last week of January, we didn't appear to shift our planning. We seemed to continue for the next six weeks to think that we were dealing with an influenza-like virus, which was clearly a massive error of judgement. And I think when the inevitable public inquiry happens, That's one of the first questions we have to ask and have answered. Why did we not heed the evidence from China that we were dealing with a SARS-like virus?
0: It's very hard to understand now. Retrospect is a great thing, isn't it? But, you know, cancer patients highly vulnerable group you would imagine that even if it was a flu type thing not SARS they would have planned for this Uh, you know nine million deaths a year plus isn't it globally for cancer what has Mm. happened Uh, have they been airbrushed cancer patients and sacrificed in the rush to fight this novel new disease
1: yes I mean you may know that um, I have stage 3c melanoma Um, so in some and which I'm under treatment for, and so which is the reason I wanted to do this because I feel that this is my community now. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I go to the Royal Free Hospital, and that hospital was completely locked down. I could not enter that hospital unless I had an appointment. Um, a proof of an appointment, either a piece of paper or a text message from the melanoma clinic to say that I had an appointment, the hospital was completely out of bounds to me. Um, that meant if I if I had a concern about something, and I did have a couple of concerns during that time, whether it was access to medications, um, concerns about um, a recurrence, um, it was very, it was almost impossible for me to get ready access to the hospital. Now, this is just me. I'm a doctor. I know how to navigate the system Mm. um, quite well. I can't imagine what it's like for somebody. And and, you know, my hospital is literally 20 minutes by car from here. I can't imagine what it's like for somebody who's at distance, who's not familiar with the National Health Service, who's frightened out of their life. and now who doesn't have access to their specialist nurse or their specialist doctor to give them wise counsel. So I, I think what happened was, you know, you hear the politicians say um, the NHS coped. The NHS coped in the sense that intensive care was not overwhelmed by patients with COVID-19. But the reason why the hospital coped was because they shut out everybody else. They shut out patients who were having ongoing treatment with cancer. They shut out potential new patients who needed to be referred for diagnostic workup because cancer was suspected. They shut out patients with other kinds of disease, whether it was from heart disease or any other kind of disease so in the sen- in that sense the nhs despite the brilliant work of our health workers on the front line absolute brilliant work but as a system the nhs manifestly did not cope because it was not able to absorb the additional work of covid without shutting down almost completely the existing work it was doing for patients so this is another one of the questions that has to be looked at. How do we build what one might call a resilient health system, a system that can absorb shocks like COVID-19 without throwing everybody else out um, to fend for themselves?
0: Well, you know, it, it, it strikes me as just so bizarre. We are not a developing world country <laughs> I said, what the heck has happened here? They didn't even think about the hubs thing for a long time. And even then, it's not settled, is it? There are some hubs up and running. They can do a Nightingale Hospital, get that up from scratch. But for some reason, there was an absolute block about providing hubs or COVID-like places for people that needed their cancer treatment to go on. I'm confused.
1: Well, I mean, I, I I, think the um one of the issues was that we were so badly prepared for a pandemic Um, That There was real panic on the front lines. Um, During the course of March and April, as the wave of infection was sweeping through the country for the first time, I was getting messages every single day from frontline health workers who literally were in the middle of scenes that were nothing less than carnage. you had nurses doctors porters healthcare assistants everybody who works on the front line was struggling with a massive influx of patients with covid19 there was no personal protective equipment available other than the wrong equipment equipment that absolutely did not protect them there were not enough staff because health workers were themselves falling ill, and so there were too few people on the front line to cope. The sheer volume of patients was just massive. Everybody had to reinvent what a hospital or a general practice was doing in order to cope with this um, crisis, and people were just in the middle of chaos. So I think, you know, you've got no pandemic plan. You were late to the party anyway, because you weren't thinking of SARS. Um, You've chucked over 30,000 patients out of hospital because you're trying to clear space for patients with COVID-19. You shut down the health service. Everybody's in a panic. I mean, this, this was basically the problem. And there was no strong leadership from the center about how the NHS should respond and I think again you know looking back um, there were these daily press briefings with a different minister every day different medical or scientific advisers popping up every day it wasn't clear that there was a single line of command and control of the NHS so the messages were confused the messages were mixed there was no clear leadership. Um, you know, I have a lot of admiration for Simon Stevens um, and the way he's defended the NHS, but he literally vanished and we never saw him. And he's the chief executive of the National Health Service. Where was he? We needed his voice. We needed his visible leadership. And he simply wasn't there. I don't understand why. Um, and I think, I think the fact that there was this vacuum in leadership combined with the chaos on the front line led to the, led to the situation that we're talking about. And the fact is that we're now at 44,000, and that's a minimum, 44,000 deaths from COVID-19. And the majority of those deaths are entirely pre- were entirely preventable. And that is not merely a tragedy but it should be something that provokes enormous anger amongst the British population. And that's, to be frank, another mystery why people aren't more angry about this mortality, because right. it's shocking.
0: This is a very big point that keeps coming through. And I've done a couple of podcasts recently just doing patient voice stuff and and hearing what they say. They feel they are shouting in the wilderness that people are accepting their death as, well, you know, you've got cancer. That's for older people. You'll die. That's a shame. It doesn't matter until it matters and you get cancer. (laughs) You don't understand what it's like. I've
1: heard this. I know. I've heard this from statisticians who are regularly cropping up in the media. Um, and they'll say things like, "Well, um, you know, people would have died this year anyway, and this just simply accelerated their deaths by a few months." And you kind of think, you know, I, I, and I, I put this in the in, in the short little book I've written. There's been a radical dehumanisation of this um, of this pandemic, and what we've done is we've reduced the pandemic and its effects to a set of statistics um by which we're measuring it and for me what what we need to reclaim are the stories of people's lives what i've said is this has been a triumph of biology over biography and we need to re-establish the priority of biography over biology how do and we it, do we're that Richard. About-
0: how do we do that hmm? because we're looking at a government and governments that that depend on stats they're not really interested in personal narratives how do you change the mindset
1: yeah no you're right and the, and we and we need to think how we do that and i and i think that, that there are ways to do that and um you know one of the things i've written about is how we establish memory of this of this tragedy um you know if i there are some very powerful ways to do this. Actually, um, if you you may have gone to the Vietnam War Memorial mm-hmm. in Washington D.C., and every time I'm in Washington, I always walk down there. Actually, because it is the most moving um, tribute to people who lost their lives in the Vietnam War, and you have this, you know, this this combination of this beautiful piece of um, of memorial with the name of every single person inscribed. So you can't lose the names. You know, the name of every person is remembered. And I think what we have to do, and it's a lot of people, but you know, across the country, we need to find a way to remember the names and the lives of every single person who has lost their lives. So what I would like to see is the equivalent of a Vietnam War Memorial in every town, in every city, up and down the country, so that we remember the lives of people lost. Um, to me, that's the only way that we can keep this event in our memory. So to remember the biographies of people, but also to remember the lessons, so we don't make, this, we don't make the same mistakes again.
0: Well, you will know that, you know, so many services were suspended and we're seeing on Twitter and social media, a lot of people saying, sign this petition now. My daughter died because she didn't get chemotherapy. Uh, Mm. it, It is almost unbelievable that so much got jettisoned. And I totally take on board what you say about the blind panic and trying to, you know, the carnage that was in the front line. People, good people, good doctors and nurses trying their best. But you just think it's it's just unacceptable to think that basically your treatment will stop halfway through and it's possible that your disease will progress and you will die because nobody planned for this properly.
1: No, I I absolutely agree. Um, and I think this is where Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, is right, that we do need to wait and to see the the, the, the total impact of the pandemic is not just those people who died directly of COVID nineteen. We do need to see what the impact has been on people who've been shut out of the NHS or have not been diagnosed with other conditions because of the impact of COVID nineteen. And I think um, I think the the if I put it this way, those people who are living with with, with cancer or are were on the edge of being diagnosed with cancer have been a particularly vulnerable group because, I mean, I don't think I would have appreciated it quite so much. I mean, your your treatment is a lifeline. Um, I take tablets every day. Um, if I don't have access to those tablets, then my treatment stops. And that means that the all of the Suppression of the cancer um, stops too. So it's absolutely essential not to miss your treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or radiotherapy or immunotherapy, but also diagnostic procedures. So, um, and, and procedures that monitor the course of your condition. I had MRI and PET CT scans canceled because uh, the imaging departments did not want people to come into the hospital. I can understand that from an infection control point of view, but the, but the fact that, we, that that was not planned for, so that these continuing investigations and monitoring could not take place, there will be people who will have had recurrences of their cancer, and those recurrences will not have been diagnosed um, as quickly as they could have been diagnosed, and treatment then instituted to address that recurrence, because their follow-up imaging will have been cancelled, um, and that is unacceptable for a country like the UK. Um, and we need to, you know, that needs to be said. I mean, I, 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 I do want to pay tribute to health workers who were on the front lines. It's not any, it's not any individual's fault that that happened. It's a system failure because we didn't have the system that planned for this kind of pandemic and we didn't have the system that could cope with this kind of pandemic. So we need to learn the lessons of that. And I think one of the, again, one of the issues that I find so appalling and shocking is that we have a prime minister and even medical advisers, even worse, who are saying that this is not the right time to learn lessons, this is not the right time to have an inquiry. Because we do need to learn lessons. As we have flare-ups, and if there's a second wave as we come into the fall and winter this year, it's absolutely crucial that we've learned the lessons so that we don't make the same mistakes again. And unless we have this inquiry, and I'm not, I'm not interested in blaming individuals, I'm interested in learning the lessons for the system. Unless we have this inquiry, we're not going to be able to cope with a second wave or a third wave over the next six months or so um, which we need to learn those lessons in the absence of a vaccine
0: well here's another lesson and again i was privy to talking to quite a lot of interesting people in research and uh, i get put in touch with the university of birmingham and it transpires just talking about access to hospitals and and the risk associated with going into hospital if your immune system is compromised in any way this guy, uh, Dr. Uh, Leonard Lee, told me that he had set up um COVID monitoring project basically for people having chemo. And they discovered that there was absolutely no additional risk to, to you know, patients that were wanting to have chemo for going into hospital. So that was an immediate reassurance that they contacted, yeah. I think, 65-ish cancer centres around Britain. So I'm just wondering if that, there's that facility to tell people you're very unlikely to pick up COVID because you're compromised already, which might fly in the face of logic or whatever. But they, they had the stats, they'd done the work, but none of that was translated onto the front line to let people know or doctors know or, or, you know, clinicians know, you can tell your patients, we've got some evidence that will back up the fact that you're, you're pretty unlikely to get anything. Don't be as worried as you think you should be. That really frustrates me because then that's a communication failure thing as well, or a systemic failure that there is progress being made in one area, but it's not being shared with the rest of the NHS. It's not a centralised system.
1: No, I mean there was a I think there was a failure in communication but I think there was a failure in risk management as well prior to the communication failure because um I think if there had been a better assessment of the uh, risk of transmission of the virus and the efforts that you could implement to mitigate those risks and there were efforts early on um I mean we we see them now the visors that people wear the masks that we we have I mean, this this information was not new. Again, if you go back to the last week of January, all of these issues about protective equipment were all clearly set out. And then it was an issue of procuring that protective equipment, and we hadn't done so. So there were measures that one could put in place to mitigate the risks. But there was this, and this is what I say about this blind panic, there was this panic um, that everything was shut down. Um, and that was a you know it was it was it was an interesting it's it, it's' it was an interesting response because what happened was that there was this fear and the answer to the fear was complete avoidance of the virus by shutting people out of hospitals and repurposing them for covid nineteen that that was while I can understand that response that was clearly a mistake too because what we should have done, and we've now learned that, I think, is ne- renegotiate our relationship with the virus such that it was about managing the risk. And we didn't do that very well. I, I think part of the reason, to be fair, is that we didn't have the equipment. Um, and and this, is, this is where we do need to learn the lessons of Exercise Cygnus in 2016, which was the scenario planning for a pandemic and we were clearly not ready for a pandemic <clears throat> and we didn't have the right equipment ready this time and that was a that was a woeful failure and that's this is one of the lessons that we we need to pick up
0: You're listening to Ripples, the podcast about unintended consequences that come from big events or decisions. I'm Claire English and sitting in with me this time is the editor of The Lancet, Richard Horson. He's a man with vast experience of the world of medicine and research and he's also a cancer patient. We were talking about the lessons to be learned from the handling of this pandemic. So let's leap back in there as I ask Richard a bit more about that we are learning things there are good things that have come out of this you know the, the teleconsultation stuff as well and the fact that well you'll know that you can get some chemo delivered to your house now in packs or sort of, two I've or three had months that.
1: i've had my immunotherapy delivered to yeah. my house on two occasions
0: which kind of begs the question uh why why, why weren't they doing this before why were people getting sh- well, schlepping to yeah, hospital I... to have to have but. this done
1: but but i think i think that's been fantastic you know I, on two occasions i've had an a, you know a lovely person come around and drop my treatment off and that's been amazing to see that happen um and i've had t- uh not video consultations but phone calls with nurses and doctors over the last three or four months that's been great too but it's very important you know cancer is one of those things if you've got cancer um It's very important as a doctor to be able to examine your patient. And I mean, when I say examine your patient, I really mean laying your hands on their body. You need to examine their heart, their lungs, their abdominal system. You need to be able to look at them carefully and closely to see whether there are any signs of the disease if it's progressing, if it's regressing, if it's recurring or not. So this issue of face-to-face contact and touch, actually, is not something that can be done in a video consultation. So I'm a great fan of the technological acceleration that we've seen in the last three or four months, but it does not wholly replace the need for a doctor or a nurse, specialist nurse who is there with you side by side, who can see you and who can examine you. You can't replace that by a video consultation. So I would, I would temper this technological enthusiasm with saying that the, it cannot replace the personal contact that you have with your healthcare provider.
0: What about um, other innovation we've seen, Richard, because of this pandemic? Uh, I'm thinking about big pharma suddenly working with rivals and driving forward to find a vaccine and this common cause that we've never seen before in pharma. And I'm not introducing pharma in general. I'm just saying it just hasn't happened. It's not been the culture. But now we've seen a bit of that. A lot of the cancer patients I'm hearing from are saying, gosh, if we had had half the effort put into our, you know, affairs that has happened with COVID, they're very resentful of the fact that cancer could have been not, you're not going to cure cancer like that, but you can live with cancer and you can make massive advancement if there's massive effort and willpower. And that's what they're seeing happening with COVID.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, um, I think the, you know, the, the, the farmer story is fascinating because I mean, the way somebody put it to me is that what COVID-19 has done is sweep away 20 years of bureaucracy and research, which has actually slowed the pace of research um, and harmed patients because it slowed discovery science, slowed the passage of new treatments that could have been put into practice in the front line faster, but got, got held back because of this bureaucracy. The recovery trial is a good example of that in the UK. I mean, the UK has always had this great advantage over other countries, and that is the National Health Service. I mean, the National Health Service should be a laboratory for experimental medicine where we can develop and test new medicines and get them into practice faster than any other country. And the truth is that we've never been able to take advantage of the NHS, in the way that we should have done. What COVID-19 has allowed us to do is to cut through that red tape. And the trick actually now is going to be to protect that advantage that Mm. we've developed. So, you know, we mustn't go back to the old way. Uh, and One of my worries is that we will go back to the old way and, and that would be a terrible, terrible loss. But, you know, research, I mean, if you go to some of the best hospitals in the United States, um, they see themselves as centers of excellence for patient care, for education, and for research. Mm. And I don't think that we have um, done the best that we can to make research part of routine NHS care. And research should be a routine part of NHS care because it's the only way you... Yeah. I mean, all of the new immunotherapies, for example, that are now available for cancer, are all through stunning, innovative, basic science and clinical research, you know, they've transformed the lives of millions of people living with cancer. But that's because of research taking place in hospitals. We should be patients. We should be demanding that that is the norm not the exception. And at the moment, it's the exception.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem to be translating into patient care. But what about data as well? Data sharing? I mean, data is so important when you've got a pandemic. It's very important for science and research. If you had a kind of self-learning NHS, which is what we're talking about, you have more research based there. You know, how important does that become? Because patients, again, who I speak to, are really willing to share their data. But there seems to be a risk or an avoidance thing going on there as well that's stopping progress. Because if you get more people providing data, more knowledge, more research, more advance. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a there's been this huge concern about privacy issues. And um, privacy, you know, I, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because... Um, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and, and all these big scares and banks, um, lo- you know, accidentally providing access to people's bank accounts. Everybody's got very nervous about 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 how data are too easily shared. But if it's if it's you or me with a particular condition, and you know that those data, if shared, could perhaps provide a clue, taken with other data. Um, to a new treatment or a new possibility um, for understanding a disease, we would willingly share our data. I mean, why would we not? And this is part of the bureaucracy that I'm talking about. That Over the last 20 years, because of so-called ethical privacy concerns, there has been this edifice of bureaucracy that's been created with all these rules and regulations stopping people from doing things. And we need to we need to change the culture so that instead of it being about stopping people from sharing data and and taking advantage of the data we have to advance health and treatment of disease, we need to change that culture so that we find ways to accelerate that. And we, and we haven't done that. We, you know, there's this phrase defensive medicine. And we've become very Americanized in the 70s and 80s um american medicine changed to become defensive because of fears of litigation so doctors would find reasons not to do things because they were scared of being sued we we've become like that in the uk too we find reasons not to do things and now we need to find reasons to do things and that does mean the use of patient data But we haven't been very good at that i mean look at the You know, when we tried to build a massive electronic health record system in the NHS a few years ago, we spent billions of pounds and we weren't able to do it. So we don't have a very good track record in the UK.
0: One wonders how it's going to come about then. I mean, it's wonderful to have conversations about these things, but how does that translate into action? And I kind of want to ask you as well about the importance, the pivotal role of the patient voice in all this, because it seems they've been the ones on the periphery. Uh, of a lot of decisions. Yeah. And you know, you know yourself, uh, you're a doctor, you're an editor, but you've also got cancer. You know what it's like and you can tell, uh, you can inform the debate in a way that nobody else can. And that resource is not being used enough.
1: No, you're right. Um, you, I, I remember going back to the Bristol Heart Inquiry. I you remember I do. back, must be 20 years or so mm-hmm. ago now, there was the inquiry into Bristol Heart Surgery where lots of children were unfortunately died due to very, very poor quality surgery that was being offered at the Bristol Royal Infirmary. Now, when that inquiry started, the very first thing that Ian Kennedy did, he was chairing the inquiry, was to actually get the parents of the children who died to give evidence. Yeah, I remember that. So he started with a listening exercise. And I think that's what we need to do here, that when we do have the public inquiry, which I hope will be sooner rather than later, we need to begin with a listening exercise so that we have the families of patients, whether we're talking about older or younger, black minority ethnic populations, people living in poor circumstances, people with chronic disease, We need to have their stories. So it comes back to where we started. We need to get the biographies of patients, the experiences of patients, first and foremost, out there, up there in the inquiry. And I think that we do have precedents for that. And Ian Kennedy's inquiry was one of them. And I hope that we can learn those lessons. Those biographies need to come first.
0: Well, who is it down to at the end of the day to make sure this happens and drive it? I mean, it's people like you because you're an influencer, you know, but also government policymakers. How do you get them on board to understand the necessity of doing this now?
1: Well, right now, um, we've got government ministers and and advisors resisting this. So we have a real problem. Uh, I mean, I think the... It's a great question. Um, you know, you could have a petition that leads to a debate in Parliament. Um, you could have the, the problem is that we're at a time where you can't have marches or gatherings in Trafalgar Square to demand anything because we need to be physically distant. So it's it's hard. I I would hope that our opposition parties could put more pressure. On the government to have a public inquiry that's what i that's what i would wish i would i would hope that um keir starmer and others could take this matter up and make it one of their top priorities so that we learn these lessons and that we preserve these biographies.
0: The danger of public inquiry is that it just gets kicked into the long grass and there are recommendations and they never, well, that's unfair, they rarely get acted upon and there's no sense of urgency. That's the problem, isn't it?
1: Well, that that can be a problem. Uh, And and certainly there are many good examples that that one can point to to prove that you're right. But there have been inquiries that have led to changes. There was no doubt that after the Bristol cancer, um, the Bristol uh, heart inquiry, uh, there's no question that there were improvements in the quality and regulation of doctors or surgeons who were doing cardiac surgery. Systems were set up to monitor mortality in different centres across the country so that that could never happen again. So I think there are moments where, you know, the, there's something terrible has happened where constructive recommendations are made that can lead to important changes. So I I try and remain optimistic and hopeful that that could be the case, that could be the case here. But we do need to have this investigation.
0: Are you worried about the effect of all this on cancer research? Because we see now that funding is plummeting. Some yeah. charities are disappearing. Um, th- how much of a, a an existential threat is it then to cancer research and proper funding? And I'm not even going to mention Brexit.
1: Well, I just did. <laughs> no, I mean, this is the issue about the charity sector. We're, we're very fortunate in the UK in having a vibrant charity sector which invests billions of pounds into, uh, into medical research. The, the problem with that is that when you have an economic shock that we're now going through and that's going to be with us for some time, I don't believe that there's going to be this V-shaped response uh, in our economy. Um, if it's going to be more like a, a tick, it's going to take a longer time for us to recover then that's going to have a massive impact on the charity sector across all aspects of medical research. So we are going to see a decline in the giving capacity of the public for the charity sector. That will translate directly into less money going into medical research, and that will have an impact on the front lines of care. There's no question about that. Now, the, 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 the question to then ask is, would the government be prepared to make up the shortfall of money that has not gone into um, the charity sector, and then you do have the perfect storm because you have a situation where the government is already racked up lots of debt and coming out of the European union unfortunately there is a there is a link to that because Coming out of the European Union means we're having less money from the Horizon program, the research program. The government has agreed to fulfill that for the short term, but in the medium term, they have not. We've already damaged research collaborations, including in cancer across Europe, by coming out of the European Union. So we're not in a great place, unfortunately. We do have an incredibly strong research community in the UK, but it cannot be taken for granted. It is fragile, and we're now going to pass through the worst economic shock since the 1700s. I'm not talking about since 2007, 2008. We are now in the worst economic shock for 300 years, and we don't actually have a plan, a strategy to get through that let alone a strategy to get through that for the NHS or for medical research. So it's a, no, it's a, um, it's a stiff challenge that we've got. And, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, it's happened at a time where, you know, I don't want to be party political about this, but at, with a government that has asto- shown astonishing, if I may say, levels of incompetence.
0: We're gonna to have to be very creative, aren't we, in future if we're going to do, I mean, I don't know if you can redress the balance from what's happened here to cancer patients and cancer care, uh, globally probably, what this pandemic has done to it. But in terms of where research goes next, how do you feel about throwing in your lot with genomics? Is that the way ahead? Is it precision medicine? Is that the way everyone should be concentrating? What do you feel?
1: Well, precision medicine and precision cancer medicine is certainly part of the way ahead. Um, if you, Treatments that are targeted at particular groups of patients because they have a certain genotype or, or a set of mutations is certainly, certainly part of it. Um, but it's not the whole part of it. I mean, m- much of cancer, maybe a third of cancers, are actually preventable. And we need to have a much bigger program on the, prevent, the, the causes of cancer and what we can do to reduce the impact of those causes of cancer. Um, and to be fair, again, our charity sector has done a very good job of trying to draw attention, for example, to overweight and obesity as being a major contributor to cancer. Um, and we do need to address not just the treatment, but also the prevention. And I think we haven't done that well enough. We, we need to spend, wouldn't it be better not to have a breast cancer or not to have an ovarian cancer or not to have uh, gastric cancer? Wouldn't it be better not to have that than to have amazing treatments for it? So I think there are things we can do to prevent as well as to treat.
0: We're probably in the closing minutes of this conversation. We are. Yeah. <laughs> You're thank goodness for that. <laughs> totally. Have you got a final message for the government or those who make decisions, policy decisions about our health service, and have you got one for cancer patients who'll be listening to this as well, Richard?
1: Well, I think for government, my my primary request is to listen to the voices of the public and patient community and the families of people who lost their lives because of COVID-19, or, the, or those who've been affected, including patients living with cancer, been affected by what's happened during COVID-19. Um, this is not just a technical challenge. This, I mean, the way I put it is, COVID-19 was not just a health crisis, it's actually a moral provocation for our society. COVID-19 held a mir- has held a mirror up to society and we've seen the awful injustices in our society that we knew were there, but we've never had to confront them. But now we've had to confront them. And now that we have seen them, I don't think we can walk away from them. So the role of the patient community, of which I am part, is that our job is to hold government accountable for not just its mistakes, but to hold them accountable for the future. We, it's not about returning to normal or even this awful phrase, build back better, which I absolutely hate. It's actually about re-envisioning what our society should be like. It's about thinking of those people who are most vulnerable and, and what we do to protect them. The question we have to ask ourselves is what do we owe each other? And that's the answer we have to find, and I think the answer to that question will mean that we try and create a very different society than the one we've just left.
0: The editor of The Lancet, Richard Horton, whom I hope never stops calling out bad decisions or questioning the orthodoxies. It was a real pleasure hearing what he's picking up from this strange and unnerving episode in our history. Let me know what you think of his comments. There's plenty of food for thought. You've been listening to Ripples with Claire English and please pass on the news about this podcast to anyone you reckon might be interested. You can listen on the platform of your choice whether it be Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple, Breaker, Overcast etc etc. It's free you just have to press subscribe. Now I can also be contacted via my Facebook page for the Ripples podcast. All the previous editions are there plus some little films that participants have kindly sent me along with some other material that might interest you. I'm following your steer as ever for the next edition of Ripples. It might be something on the plethora of reports and surveys that cancer patients participate in. But to what end? Who uses the information? How does it inform patient care? For now, big thanks for your time. Stay safe.